Hello and welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki. And you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So Rifki, I saw this really interesting movie yesterday. It's called 93 Queen. Have you heard of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so th- they've been doing like a few premieres of this movie, uh-huh. like uh, in and around the New York area. Uh-huh. Um, well, the, yeah, this wasn't the premiere. I think it was just showing at the, I saw it at the IFC Center. Uh-huh. Um, downtown. downtown. Yeah. yeah. It's very like hipster kind of yeah. small so theater. So is, is it, it's about this Hasidic judge or what's, yeah. it, what's it about? So exactly? Ruchi Fryer mm-hmm. is her name. Um, and I knew of her because I remember seeing the stories a few months ago when she became the first woman, right. woman Hasidic um, judge. Um, but the main, and that is in the movie, spoiler, I guess. <laughs> but the main uh, focus of the, of the story of the movie, it's a documentary, is how she started this thing called Ezras Nashim, which is... It's a, like the Hatsala? It's like an all-female Hatsala equivalent in mm-hmm. Borough Park. So is it for any women who need some sort of EMT or emergency help? Yeah. Basically, they started it because they wanted to give women an option specifically for childbirth, um, but also for any other EMT-related mm-hmm. situation um, where the woman in distress may not want you know this is these are women who have never touched a man other than their husband and now they're in this very very vulnerable state and then and they're surrounded by like 10 men you know uh-huh. from Hatsala yeah. and so they want to give these women the option they could still call Hatsala if they want but they want to give them the option to to have women um, taking care of them right and so they wanted to start this organization it was very very difficult and that's what the movie's really about all the hurdles that they came up against and how they uh, well i don't want to say what happens right. in the end but but it already sounds just listening to it and from hearing from a couple other people who saw it it's incredibly empowering and it's exciting for especially for a community that really doesn't get so much press for the forward thinking things they've like done for the for the larger community so that's like pretty cool to, to hear about a group like that yeah to have the focus on, on yeah, these exactly. women Espe- i mean there's a lot going on in the movie and it, it, as, a, as a film i thought it was very well done and mm-hmm. interesting and captivating but specifically this um, woman Ruchi fryer who's a fascinating and extremely driven and energetic person mm-hmm. um so a lot of the movie is about her specifically um, and she's a you know very captivating character. Uh, okay, so I need to see it. All right, I also just have to note, uh, just speaking of women involved in uh, ambulance corps, my cousin Atara, who's 15, who lives in Israel, she just started volunteering for Magen David Adom, like, which is the ambulance corps in Israel. Uh-huh. She actually, either last night or this morning, I'm not sure, delivered a baby. Wow, she's that's incredible. She's 15 years old. Amazing. So what have we been doing? So yeah, I got to see that movie, Ari. Yeah. And Thanks then, for sharing. And then maybe once you do, we can uh, talk about it on the podcast, because obviously we, we're not going to talk about a movie that we haven't both seen. Who would do that? I'm being told that it's not right for Jewish girls to become EMTs. So when I first went to Hatzalah, oh no, they told me, Mrs. Fry, when it comes to speed and strength, men are superior. Hatzalah is the boys club. It took like 30 years for somebody like Ruchi to come around and say, hey, you don't want us, we'll do our own thing. Well, for today's topic, over the past year, we've had an explosion of the Me Too movement, of cases of powerful men taken down by accusations of sexual harassment, assault, and worse. Recently, a powerful story came out which flipped that script on its head. Dr. Avital Ronell, a world-renowned female professor of German and comparative literature at NYU, was found responsible for sexually harassing a former male grad student, Nimrod Reitman. Mr. Reitman said that she had sexually harassed him for three years, and he shared with the New York Times, which wrote a a big story about this, dozens of emails in which she referred to him as my most adored one, sweet, cuddly baby, and possibly the most cringeworthy, Uri, 
cocker spaniel. Oh, that was gross. Among plenty of other really gross things. Both Mr. Reitman and Professor Ronell's descriptions of their experiences echo other Me Too stories. He claims that he was scared of his advisor and her power over him, which is why he would go along with her inappropriate and unprofessional behavior. Professor Ronell said that Mr. Reitman was obsessed with her and that he would constantly seek her out for her guidance and her attention. So, obviously that story is troubling enough, but to make it even more painful... After the university made its decision, a group of academic scholars from around the world, including prominent feminists, sent a letter to NYU in defense of Ronell. First on the list was Judith Butler, one of the most influential feminist scholars today. I do want to add, though, that two days after the New York Times article came out, she stepped away from the letter, but her apology was pretty pathetic and ridiculous anyway. But anyway, here are some snippets from the draft of the letter as quoted by the New York Times. Although we have no access to the confidential dossier, we have all worked for many years in close proximity to Professor Ronell. We have all seen her relationship with students, and some of us know the individual who has waged this malicious campaign against her. We testify to the grace, the keen wit, and the intellectual commitment of Professor Ronell, and ask that she be accorded the dignity rightly deserved by someone of her international standing and reputation. So there's a lot there to unpack, but Uri, let's just start with the basics. Let's start with who these people are, right? Their identities. She is this powerful professor, and she's the woman, right? Very different than what usually happens. And he is the lowly grad student, and he's the male. He identifies as gay, and she identifies as queer, right? Which is kind of interesting, but does that matter? They're both Israeli, which she actually uh, said explicitly in a letter to the Times that, oh, you don't understand, is how we talk to each other. Is that an important part of the story? What do, what do you think, Uri? Well, I think there's a lot here. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to just have our cliche introduction, which is like, it's complicated. Because um, actually, in some ways, I do think this is not so complicated Ooh. in the sense that I've been reading as much as I can about this story. So the New York Times article was the most prominent mm-hmm. um article about the story, but there was a lot of other things written. And even in the New York Times article, there were hundreds of comments. I didn't read all of them, but I read as many as I could. The New York Times highlights some of the you know most highly rated or whatever um, comments. And in a, not one single comment or article or anything I found online did anybody really defend the professor or even the letter in, written in defense of her. It was really like across the board, whether the people were right wing, left wing, whatever, everybody seemed to be saying what this professor did was wrong. And the people who who wrote this letter in support of her and trying to like discredit the, you know, her accuser, that was wrong, possibly even like more wrong in a, in a different kind of mm-hmm. way. Interesting. I read one thing that kind of tried to make the case in both ways that was published on Salon, but it was coming more from an academic perspective. From all the practical perspectives, it was definitely clear that the writers really found her behavior to be incredibly problematic. Uh And basically they were asking the question, can it really be sexual harassment if it's coming from a woman and what that really looks like? And the conclusion was... Basically, yes, but it's more complicated. More complicated. Okay. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say was to the question that you asked at the end, like, are there different, they're all their identities here mm-hmm. uh, relevant in terms of which one is the man, which one is the woman, the fact that they're both Israeli, the fact that they both identify as gay. Um, I think to be real about it, all of those details make the story more interesting to the public 
which is why you know there are lots of cases, unfortunately, in academia and in all areas of sexual abuse and harassment. I don't think this is the first one where the you know abuser was a woman and the victim was a man. But all of these extra details make the story juicier. And I, th- I think that's why the story is getting a lot of press. And then the letter written in support um, also makes it juicier because right. the, the, the primary signatory, the first person who signed that letter and possibly wrote the letter, I read that she is the, was also the primary author of the letter, um, Judith Butler, um, what a lot of people did because it was like very low-hanging fruit it was a very easy target was like for these right wing people to come and say, and to want to completely discredit feminists in general, I guess, but Judith Butler as representing those feminists as saying, see, she's just a massive hypocrite because she, you know, it's her and people like her who are saying how important it is to take down abusers and to, you know, check these people with too much power. But when one of their own perpetrates this exact crime, all of a sudden they come to their defense. And and just to make it clear, NYU did an internal review that found her guilty. So it's not like this is right. just a pure um, accusation they found, they, with well, no... Guilty she, of sexual harassment, exactly. not abuse and, uh, and stalking and a couple of the right. other um, right. claims They that said were they weren't her. able to corroborate those because no one else had been in the room no right during saw specific it. things there were no which is it's funny because that's often you know the women lose these these things right. all the time well, because he's like well we, we don't know we weren't there also i think what's interesting about that letter is um jezebel will post obviously links to all of these articles because a lot of them are, are very very interesting and all sort of offer different perspectives uh esther wang of jezebel wrote a really really interesting take on this whole thing and one of the things that she noted is in going through the letter that these academics wrote in support was that their defense sort of mounted to the four main arguments that we've heard so many times in the me too movement right first of all she's an exceptional person we don't know the the facts but she's an exceptional person two this whole thing must be a misunderstanding again because she's an exceptional person three she she couldn't have done that right because she's so great right exactly and the third thing right she's a genius right so not only must she not have done this you don't understand how geniuses work right Uh she 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 can't be expected to conform Uh to these regular social rules she she interacts differently with people than we do we we, you can't possibly understand what she is Mm -hmm. and four anyway none of this matters because this accuser is totally untrustworthy right right? exactly um which is 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 almost textbook what we've seen over and over in the flip side of these cases, which is what I think Uri makes it more difficult. And I think something that made me pretty sad and probably you also is that it's equal opportunity, right? When a powerful man is accused by 50 women, people step up to defend him, not because they know the facts of the case and can argue compellingly, no, 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 you've misunderstood. Here's what really happened. But because he's in my camp, I have to defend someone who's in my camp. It feels like there's identity politics at work here in the in the most destructive way. She too is a philosophy professor. She too is an academic. She too is actually hilarious. One of the professors who also signed this letter, I'm probably pronouncing his name completely wrong, but it's something like Zizek. He's also a professor at NYU, and he actually wrote in an opinion piece that was published a few days after the New York Times article defending why he had signed that letter. And one of the things he said was, oh, all of these people think that I signed the letter because we are, you know, academic colleagues. Actually, we're in completely mm-hmm. different camps. Different we t- <laughs> And like what he wrote was so ridiculously like academic and he was explaining how uh, this human it was it was it was laughable that he thought that that was she's a, a deconstructionist yeah. but oh I'm my god a... like i would defend someone like her oh my right. god i'm happy to see her destroyed right. but you know it just you know, he made it, it worse exactly it was very funny to to read the blindness with which he was 
approaching the, this this conversation. But Uri, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think. I mean, both about how these professors could actually feel comfortable writing this letter, but about the, the entire weird situation in general. When you read the original article, sort of, how, what were your initial reactions? It was kind of a bombshell in the article because they don't tell you until like very deep into the article that they both identify as gay. Mm-hmm. And that obviously is surprising given the circumstances. And I wasn't exactly sure what to make of that. The fact that they're both Israeli, which I just assumed from their names. Yeah. Um, I think it's embarrassing for Jews and, and for, you know, I guess Israelis also that these Israelis are in this story for something that they, you know, nobody's proud of. Um, I do think there is something to what she said that like, you don't understand. We had this intimacy because we're both Israeli. Obviously it's no excuse, but I do see that as being a thing that, you know, they are two Israelis at NYU in New York. There's going to be, or there could potentially be this kind of intimacy that they have this common um you know identity and culture that not so many of the people around them have and that was something that they connected on or that maybe was why she felt closer towards him and maybe vice versa to some degree i I just think that's worth noting um and it's interesting and also the fact that it makes it more embarrassing and potentially more relevant for us to talk about um i also just i'm very curious as i started getting into before what is going through the heads of the people and these professors who defended Professor Ronell? So the first signature and possibly the author of this letter uh, defending Professor Ronell was Judith Butler. Who is Judith Butler? So without getting into too much detail, she's just a very prominent feminist um, and writer and thinker. Um, and this is not just me saying this. You look at our Wikipedia page. This is in the first paragraph. Something that she is very well known for is being very outspoken against Israel. And I think this is, Rifki, this is something you were alluding to. Where, where is this coming from? Why, is she, why would she defend an, a, someone who's convicted of sexual harassment? And it seems to have something to do with identity politics. And or some someone that I know likes to say that these radical leftists care more about ideas than they do about people. I don't know if I agree with that statement because I think you could maybe say that about any ideologue. They care more about their ideas sometimes than about individual people affected um, by those ideas. It's funny because like that's an argument that often people use on the right also or like a that's gun right it doesn't like, have to be for the funny yeah i think it works for the left but it also could work for the yeah. right it's just a problem with, with ideologues in general sometimes and so judith butler is famous slash infamous for some of her remarks related to israel most notably um in 2006 she was speaking at an event and she was asked um she was asked four questions back to back and then she sort of like answered them in a lump. So we'll include a link to this and you can see the full um, transcript of, of the conversation. But basically she was asked about Hamas and Hezbollah and what should we think about them? You know, the, the, the actual question was, since the left hesitates to support Hamas and Hezbollah just because of their use of violence, does this hurt Palestinian solidarity? And you can see what the other questions were related to that. And her answer to that part of the question was, and I'm quoting her, similarly, I think, 
yes, understanding Hamas, Hezbollah, as social movements that are progressive, that are on the left, that are part of a global left, is extremely important. That does not stop us from being critical of certain dimensions of both movements. It doesn't stop those of us who are interested in nonviolent politics from raising the question of whether there are other options besides violence. And then she goes on to say, but she completely supports BDS against Israel. Fine. So basically, even though she walks it back a little bit by saying that, yes, she is nonviolent and she doesn't believe in violence, but Hamas and Hezbollah are on the global left. They're progressive. So to me, that is a similar parallel example of Judith Butler taking her ideology and imposing it onto a situation where it's laughably wrong, but she's saying that these militant terrorist groups are on the left and they're progressive because they line up in her ideology as the oppressed and the good guys versus Israel who are the oppressor and the bad guys. So, so too, similarly in this situation, Professor Ronell, since she's a woman, since she is queer, since she is a leftist academic in Judith Butler's camp and a feminist, she is a good guy and she can't be a bad guy Therefore, regardless of what the facts are and regardless of what she was found guilty of and regardless of how many emails we may have of what she said to this student of hers, she cannot be guilty because of who she is and her identity and where she identifies. And I think most rational people will, would see that for the ridiculous hypocrisy that it is. I wouldn't make this as a blanket statement to discredit all feminists or all leftists or all academics, obviously, in the way that some people want it to be. It's just really about Judith Butler, but I don't think she's the only one. And obviously, there were many, many people who signed this letter. And I think a similar you know, description could go for all of those people also. But I mean, Rifki, do you disagree with my assessment and my bringing in her Israel statements into this conversation? I think there is some overlap there. I think identity politics is a huge problem. I think it's a problem on the left and I think it's a problem on the right. And I think Judith Butler in this case, maybe, I mean, I don't know enough about it to really say with certainty, but I think there is a, a, there is a place in which the left, you know, I say that globally, obviously, even though it's more complicated than that. But I think in general, the left has decided that being more comfortable with Hamas and Hezbollah than maybe we think they should be has sort of been accepted as part of that movement now. And I think a big part of that is not because all of these people have done this deep research into understanding the ideology and the choices of Hamas and Hezbollah. It's much more about this has sort of been decided for our group. And this is therefore where our group has gone. So you don't think Judith Butler is aware of what Hamas and Hezbollah actually do and represent? I don't think that Judith Butler is a supporter of Hamas and Hezbollah. In fact, she, she says explicitly that she's not a supporter of Hamas and Hezbollah. But what she said is, it's interesting. I feel like often academics who come from speaking in academic language often don't understand when their words are translated into the way normal people speak. And then they're like, what? That's not what I meant. It's like, that's what you said in normal language. Or right? they so when take she back said, what they said after it causes sure. a huge uproar and they get embarrassed because they look like an idiot. That's also possible. But there is a very specific academic language that she was using, right? Okay. What she said is understanding Hamas, Hezbollah as social movements that are progressive, that are on the left, that are part of a global left is extremely important, right? And when she 
clarifies that later. What she said was what it means to be part of the global left is a descriptive language, right? Those political organizations define themselves as anti-imperialist and anti-imperialism is one characteristic of the global left. So on that basis, one could describe them as part of the global left, right? And then her follow-up statement, which was about um, being critical about those groups. Okay, so fine. You can include them as part of the global left. And yet at that point, Again, using very academic language, one has to decide whether that one is for that group or against that group, right? Instead of Judith Butler kind of speaking the way you or I would speak is maybe they're part of this group, but we disavow them, we're uncomfortable with them, these are the problems with them. She was speaking much more from an academic perspective, which totally understandably is uncomfortable for those of us reading it right. or listening to it. I'm not sure it. I accept that, but I sort of get what you're saying. Okay. Um, that's fair. But I do think that there's a lot of overlap there with what happened in this case, right? Which she explicitly says, and all of these letter writers say, we don't know the specifics of this case, but we know who Ronella is. We know what she stands for. We know the, the larger context of her work. And therefore, we're standing behind her. That, to my mind, is crazy, right? Like, to say that you know someone, or to, not even to know someone, to say that you know their work, you've read their papers, you've spoken at the same conferences as them, you've had deep philosophical conversations because you o- overlap in the same field, and therefore you know that they are not a sexual harasser, even without knowing the evidence of it, is so patently ridiculous. And I think there, what Judith Butler did, and what all of these other academics did, is fall into that same pattern of saying, well, the left has made this choice, and therefore we're making that choice as well. Right, but you're connecting that to the Israel thing, and I, I thought you were saying that this is something while not unique in the sense that like anybody can fall into that trap, it, there is something unique about, let's call it the intersectionality world where they are really the ones that line the world and each individual group or person onto good guys and bad guys, oppressed and oppressor. And Hamas and Hezbollah, as complicated as they may be in their minds, they are on the oppressed side and therefore they're on Wait, the left. Wait, why do you think that Judith Butler was saying that Hamas and Hezbollah fall on the oppressed side? I'm making that assumption because oh. she put them on the progressive global left. And that's, and like you said, because there's uh, the colonizers and the colonized. I she said they were political organizations that define themselves as anti-imperialist and anti-imperialism is one characteristic of the global right. left. Right. And is democracy a characteristic of the global left? I'm not an academic and these are very <laughs> academic terms. Okay, right, these are I, not, right. I, I can say whatever I can say, but she's talking from a position. I, I understand. So, so maybe I just don't understand academia or maybe the state of academia is in a very confused and backwards place right it's now. It's funny that you say either I don't understand it. Or it's all confusing yeah, backwards. because from what I can tell, her worldview is insane and backwards, but maybe I'm just missing something. Like, <laughs> why don't we first start from the assumption that we don't understand it? Well, I don't... Okay, I mean, I don't, I don't think... Uh, I don't think I'm a dumb person, and I don't think understanding what academia is should be so confusing to the layman. That's definitely true. Academ- <laughs> there, there's a lot of things about academia that I think are very confusing. Like, the fact that there is terminology that Judith Butler says... They don't understand me because they don't understand academic. Yeah, that she, doesn't she, seem like a good excuse. Yeah, she's speaking to a, a layperson audience and therefore should use terms that people understand. And then she's like, oh, it's so weird that they misunderstood me. Um, but or t- convenient for her to use that as her excuse. Sure, again, I don't think that's the case. 
but in the d- same way that she the, she issued her apology for her letter or her like non-apology as as you said in the beginning right. only after the New York Times article came out which was a month or so after she wrote the letter so she you know it yeah. seems circumstantially that she only apologized because again she was made to look ridiculous and she was exposed she probably didn't realize that this letter was going to be publicized and then once it got yeah. publicized all of a sudden she's apologizing yeah that's definitely true in her apology one of the things that she says is that the draft version of the letter appeared online without our consent as if that's like the most critical piece just to mm-hmm. focus on she kind of writes this like pseudo apology where she writes uh, <laughs> The letter was written in haste, and the following are my current regrets about it. Even that language feels like so devoid of any real emotion or any real feel of regret. But then she she goes on to say, we ought not to have attributed motives to the complainant. Uh, the claims of sexual harassment have too often been dismissed by discrediting the complainant, and that nefarious tactics have stopped the legitimate claims. I, I wish she um, had pushed forward a little bit stronger on saying, like, a little bit of introspection. Maybe, like... We instinctively defended one of our own, and that's inappropriate when anyone does it. And we fell into that trap, and I'm sorry about that. I wish she kind of had used stronger language. This is, I think, definitely a trope with me. Like, I feel like when people make mistakes, they need to own up to it a little bit stronger. But even at the end of the whole letter, she wrote, We all make errors in life and in work. The task is to acknowledge them, as I hope I have, and to see what they can teach us as we move forward. I so fundamentally disagree with the task is to acknowledge them as I hope I have and to see what they can teach us as we move forward. The task is to make amends. The task is to recognize what you have done, try to understand what in you has caused you to to make that error and try to fix it. Try to apologize to the person, try to help the relationships and the harm that you have caused to this. Maybe we're getting a little bit off track and focusing too much on the professors and on the apology and on the letter. Um, We can go back to that. Well, let's let's yeah. Okay. So let's try to wrap this up. What is your takeaway? What do you think um, is different about this story? What do you think we should learn from it? So my takeaway, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this, but for me, my takeaway is there's something so deeply sad and problematic about power dynamics in our world, especially, right, academia, I think, is sort of tailor-made for this sort of abuse of power. Someone like Ronell has all the power. Grad students need to get jobs in an increasingly difficult job market. They need letters of recommendation. They need connections through their advisors. They need to be brought to the right conferences. They need to meet the right people. They're completely beholden to their advisors. Therefore, someone like Ronell, who has all the power, has all the connections, she can easily take advantage of someone like Reitman, who needs all of the things that Ronell can provide. So whether someone wants to claim that, no, 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 we actually knew the relationship, it was completely consensual, I do not believe such a thing can actually be true. That's it's, why it's no matter what, whether it was yeah, consensual it, it, or not. There, there's no such thing as consensual in a power dynamic such as this. There's no such thing as consensual when he needs her, right? And he says that over and over in their relationship. There's another element also, right, where there's this sort of cult of personality that surrounds professors, right? I definitely saw it growing up, and this is not the main topic of conversation, but I definitely saw it growing up with rabbis in my high school, rabbis in Israel, where students will follow teachers because they think there's something so powerful, so moving, so dynamic about their personality, and there's so much they want to learn from them. And that dynamic really affects their relationship and can really lead to a place where the person in charge, the person with the power, can really abuse 
sexually or otherwise that that person who needs them so to me what makes me so sad about this is seeing how the power dynamic plays out and how it continues to play out no matter where you are on the left on the right anything like that it's it's, it's hard to see or, or what are right. your thoughts yeah I, I mean I agree with what you just said and it, it is just very sad and it's sad because you have so many people who could even be called leaders in different kinds of ways who are really contributing so much to the world and to their students and to their followers, you know, quote unquote. And I don't think that's, in, that's inherently bad. I think there's just the more power somebody has, the more potential for bad uh-huh. there is and the more potential for abuse there is. And it's such a massive responsibility on those people in power. I think just because it's the power can be abused, that doesn't mean we should condemn anybody who has a very dynamic and charismatic personality who is, who is doing good in the world, whether they be male or female or religious or not religious or whatever. That's why that this stuff makes me so sad because it's, it's like just another example of the few ruining it for the many or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, As far as my takeaways from this story, I was heartened by the fact that, like I said before, just about everything that I read about the story and all the people who spoke about it said that this is black and white. You know, if the allegations are true, she she did something wrong, he is a victim, and to try to twist that and defend her is, is just so wrong and backwards and hypocritical and it does i don't know if it's the primary takeaway from this story but is a it is a takeaway that again just like not all people with power are are bad and abusing that power not all academics are you know have their heads up their own asses and are you know too smart for their own good or however you want to say it um but many of them are like that i i do happen to be skeptical of academia in general um, oftentimes, I'm not like a conspiracy theorist or anything, but I just think that, you know, the concept of like the ivory tower and these people who are like philosophizing and, and analyzing the world and deconstructing things without actually being in the world um, leads people like Judith Butler to say things that are so obviously um, illogical to the common man who I think can be just as intelligent as a Judith Butler, but just not in academia, so they think more normally. Um, and so I don't, again, I don't want to use this as an example to disprove all academia and all their theories and all, and all their intersectionality or whatever, but I think it's, it is telling. And I hope, honestly, that stories like this will realign some of those people and attitudes and make people more aware of some of the confusion that they that can sometimes arise when you get so theoretical and you get so stuck in your own uh, academic bubble. Yeah, it's interesting. I hear what you're saying about um, feeling a little bit skeptical about academia. I definitely do feel a little bit skeptical about academia, but I think I see it more as part of a larger whole. I think academics feel like they have the intellectual power in the world and in the country. And it feels to me like part of a larger problem of power dynamics. Yes, there's this sort of ivory tower mentality of you don't know what you're talking about. I'm the one who's really the expert, which then takes them over to fields in which they're not experts in, right? Mm -hmm. Judith Butler is not an expert in whether Professor Ronell was abusive of the student. Or in Middle East policy. Yeah, definitely true, right? She's an expert in uh, political philosophical theory, right? That that is her field and she's great in that. Well, debatable. Well, I have no idea, actually. Um, But I think that, you know, power dynamics and how 
I'm I'm very wary of power dynamics in in so many cases. It's interesting. I have this conversation often where, and we definitely don't need to get into this, but when I see uh, like police officers, I immediately get nervous. And I was talking to a friend of mine where I'm like, you know. I, they always go through red lights and, you know, they expect us to not go through lights, red lights. And he's like, well, but they're, they're, they're generally doing good. And, you know, this is not a conversation about that. But I think this idea of the more power you have, the more potential and the easier it is for you to not only use it, but for you to convince yourself that you're better and right. therefore you Above the can law. use it. Yeah. And people don't understand that when I do it, it's because, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think things like that can, can end up being very complicated and very difficult. Um, but Uri, this was a fascinating topic, and I'm glad we got to talk about this together. Yeah, same. I used to get mad at my school. I can't complain. The teachers that taught me went cool. I can't complain. You're holding me down, oh. turning me around, oh. filling me up with your rules. And thank you all so much for listening. As always, we love to hear your feedback. Please email us at talkingtachaspodcast at gmail.com. And also, please, please, please be in touch with us on our Facebook page. We love, love just talking to you in whatever medium possible. And Uri, who do we have to thank for this episode? As always, we have to thank Triven Productions for sponsoring this episode and for hosting us in their gorgeous studios. And we have to thank Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Talkless. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.